Hey, good morning. Welcome to River Ridge. Uh, my name is Matt, and um, happy Father's Day. If you're watching online, happy Father's Day to you as well. So this morning is Father's Day, and so I got to wear whatever shirt I wanted because it's Father's Day. So this is Skyline Chili from Cincinnati, Ohio, and my favorite daughter, I only have one daughter, my favorite daughter gave this to me on Friday uh, as a Father's Day present when we were in Cincinnati, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and so this morning um, is, the message is not a Father's Day message, uh, so to speak, but I will say this, uh, if you're a father, here's the instruction to you. Are you ready? You can write this down or just memorize it, all right? Don't do dumb things like the Israelites did. You got that? Don't do dumb things like the Israelites did. So this morning we are starting our new summer series uh, and we're going to be in the book of Judges for, I think, about seven weeks this summer. And so if you want to begin finding the book of Judges, it is the seventh book in your Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. I think Ruth comes after that. Um, so if you want to find that, that's where we're going to be. I, I do want to say this. Um, the book of Judges is a difficult book. It's got some hard concepts. It's a bit confusing at times. Um, and so for some of you who like to be challenged, I think this is going to be a great summer for you, a great time of looking into the book of Judges if you're a person that likes to be challenged. If you're a person who just, I just want it easy, I just want simple things, I just, you know, kind of want Honestly, this might be a bit of a challenge for you because uh, the book of Judges is hard. And let me share with you um, a little bit about the book of Judges in terms of why it, it may be difficult for us. Uh, one of the things is the book of Judges has characters in it, but sometimes it's hard to pick out who their heroes are. As a matter of fact, I've titled the message this morning, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, because as you read the book of Judges, you will come across people and they won't be totally heroes for God, and sometimes they'll do dumb things, and sometimes it's just, it's a little bit hard to figure out, are they a hero, or are they a zero, are they good, are they bad, are they ugly, or are they maybe all three of those mixed together? Here's another one. Um, the book of Judges um, contains, uh, or doesn't contain, but the book of Judges is going to present us with some intellectual challenges, some kind of difficult things to grasp with in terms of what God says and maybe why God says some things. And so we're going to have to wrestle with that over the course of this series. Here's another um, reason that this um, book is hard, is it's going to contain names of people that we're not familiar with, and it's going to contain groups of people that we're not very familiar with. You know, when you read the New Testament, and it talks about the Pharisees. And, and once you've been around a while, you go, okay, I know who the Pharisees are and kind of what they stand for. Talks about the disciples. Okay, I know who they are and what they stand for. Even something like the Samaritans. You go, okay, I kind of have a concept of what the Samaritans are and who they were. But this book, um, because it's not so familiar with it, has all these kind of people groups. It's got the Canaanites, the Simeonites, the Jezebites, the Ewoks, the Benjamites, See, I just want to make sure you're paying attention, right? But you're going to be like, why are the stormtroopers in here? There's no stormtroopers, right? But it, it has these things. And, and even as you read them, you will read and you'll be like, are these God's people 
Or are these not God's people? Or are these God's people doing the wrong thing? And, and, and there's going to be a bit of a challenge as we, as we look at that. Uh, it's 21 chapters long, so it's a pretty lengthy book and pretty dense. Um, but the other thing about it is it is set in, in a culture and in a backdrop in some ways different from ours, but in some ways incredibly similar. And I'll read that passage to you towards the end. Um, but trying to figure out the setting and the culture and what's the same and what's different, it just provides some challenges for us. So you may be asking the question, why dig in? Why do the book of Judges? Why not just skip over it and do something easier? And I'm going to give you a short answer and I'm going to give you a long answer. Here's the short answer. Because mining for beautiful diamonds takes time and effort and hard work. And as we unpack the book of Judges this next seven weeks, we're going to unpack some incredibly beautiful diamonds that take a little bit of effort to understand and to get there, but it's going to be so worth it. Here's the long answer to that question. The next 25 minutes. So my sermon this morning really is an introduction to the book of Judges uh, as we look at chapters 1 and 2. But my hope is that this will allow you to see why it's worth it to look at the book of Judges and to spend some time in the book of Judges. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning and just the worship and how that draws our hearts towards you. Thank you just for the celebration of what you have done uh, at River Ridge and through River Ridge Church to plant uh, our Taze Valley Church. And I got as we look into the book of Judges this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us just to have fresh minds uh, and to grasp all that is going on this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're going to start in chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to hit chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. We're not going to hit every verse in those two chapters this morning. And on top of that, uh, as we go through the book of Judges over the next seven weeks, we're not going to hit every single um, passage or every single chapter in this uh, but here's what I do hope that you will do, <clears throat> is when you walked in, you got a sermon outline, but then you also got something that looks like this, and it says 40 days in the book of Judges. Um, and so 40 days is about how long it will take us uh, to go through that in terms of six or seven weeks. Uh, but I would encourage you to read the book of Judges uh, on your own. Um, and on here, I put, uh, I guess, five questions uh, to help you to read this. So you read a passage, and then can you answer any of those questions out of that? Um, and I would also encourage you to read it um, with sort of a computer nearby or uh, in a study Bible, because you will get to things where you, it's like, who are the Danites? Are they good guys or are they bad guys? Who are the Amorites? Are they, what's the, you know, and, and you want to have some sort of a um, background to that. So I'd encourage you to get a study Bible or just have a, um, a computer handy where you can do some word searches if you need to figure that out. And I'll give you one more resource um, a little bit down the road. So we begin in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to go fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, let me put the book of Judges in a kind of a timeline, a, a period timeline. So if you kind of go backwards in time, 
you have, um, the, you have the man named Israel, and he has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but they are in Egypt in captivity for about 400, 430 years. And then Moses is raised up, and Moses says, let my people go. And there's the 10 plagues, and then they cross the Red Sea. Uh, and then they're supposed to go from there into the land of Canaan, or what we would call geographically modern-day Israel, Um, But they don't obey God fully, and so they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, And then Joshua comes along, and Joshua is God's man to lead the Israelites into this land, into what's sometimes called the promised land. And he says, I want you to take the land, I want you to drive out the people who are there, and this is the land that I am giving you. And so that's Joshua. And so it says, after the death of Joshua, the people inquired of the Lord. So Joshua has now died. And then you have this period of about 400 years, which is called the period of the judges. Now, the way that the word judges is used is very different from ours. This is not a Supreme Court judge or anything like that. It's really a military leader that God raises up to kind of lead Israel militarily over some other people kind of thing. So that is what a judge does. Um, so the book of Judges closes, uh, and then you have the period of the king. So you may know a little bit more about that. You've got King Saul, King David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and, and then probably some more unfamiliar kings. And then there's a period of about 40 years of silence, uh, and then you have Jesus. So that gives you a pretty broad overview timeline. Now, the book of Judges... Um, In order to understand the book of Judges, we need to understand kind of God's plan, but also we need to understand and wrestle with kind of the intellectual side of this. And so um, God's plan was that the Israelites would conquer or drive out the Canaanites from this land. Here's what this says. This is going back to Exodus chapter 34. It says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Now, most of what happens, not all of it, but most of what happens in the book of Judges is because the Israelites didn't fully follow what God commanded here as far as driving, the Isra- or driving these, all these ites, so to speak, out of the land of Canaan. They didn't follow, they didn't do what God asked them to do in terms of driving them out. Now, before we get too far, I want to pause and address kind of the elephant in the room if you're following. And I realize that this is like a lot of stuff to take in. Um, but one of the things that, if we see what's going on here, that can be difficult for us to kind of wrap our brains around is the idea of Israel going into Canaan and just driving those people out, saying, you're out of here, it's our land, God wants to have this land and not you. That's a, there's a little bit of kind of intellectual, like, that doesn't always sit real well with us. And so I want to just address that intellectual question for a moment Um, And I'm going to give you two points to help to kind of put this in the context, but I could probably give you 10 or 12 and do a sermon or several sermon series on this idea. Um, But here's the first thing, is that this land that they were conquering belonged to them first. 
that, that this is where Jacob, or whose also name is, is Israel, lived with his family in this land, and then they went to Egypt. And so when they came back, this was the land that was originally theirs. And here's the second thing, and this takes a bit of kind of understanding how God works in this world and in our lives. Um, but w- the Canaanites were the people who were living there. And the Canaanites were a nasty, brutal, awful people. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how they were that way in a few minutes. But, but one of the things that, that God does throughout history is that God will use one nation to punish another nation. So there were times when Israel, who were God's people, are punished by an outside force, the Babylonians or or whoever it might be, and they're driven out because that is God's way of kind of getting their attention and and kind of the consequences of their sin. And so what we have here is that the Israelites are basically God's people to do that to the Canaanites because they've become so depraved. Back in the book of Genesis, it says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the iniquity or the sin or the depravedness of the Amorites isn't fully complete. But when it's complete, and and God could see that into the future, I'm going to bring the Israelites back, and they're going to drive the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and all the otherites out of the land because their sin had become so full-blown. So what type of sin is this? So one of the things that these groups practiced was child sacrifice. So in order to please their God, to please Baal or Asherah or Moloch, they would sacrifice a child thinking that that was pleasing to their God. The other thing that they did, or another example, is they practiced temple prostitution. And so they would take young girls and they would put them in the temple and they were to be there and the men of the towns would come up and have sex with them. And the reason that they did that is because they thought, well, that's going to please the God. It's going to be sort of like erotica for the gods who are watching and then they're going to like what they see and then they're going to give us a great harvest. Like that's the kind of sick mentality that went on among these people. And so God said, to the Israelites, you, Joshua, and the judges, you are to drive them out. So then here's what happens. Is the Israelites, and this is what kind of occurs throughout the book of Judges, because they don't fully do what God tells them to do. They don't fully drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and so forth. It says this in Judges chapter 1, verse 28. It says, when Israel grew strong... They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehahal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became, but became a subject to forced labor. Okay? So what, and and this, by the way, it goes on for several more verses about this tribe didn't drive out this people, and these people didn't fully drive out that people. But you notice what they did instead. Instead of doing what God said, drive them completely out of the land, they said, you know what? Let's take them as forced labor. Let's take them as our slaves, because that's kind of a benefit 
to us. Instead of doing what God says, let's just keep some of them and, you know, and we can make the women kind of do our housework, which we don't like. And we can make the men go out in the fields and, and cut that and plant for us. And we'll just have them be forced labor instead of doing what God wanted them to do and to drive them completely out of the land. As we move through chapters 1 and part of chapter 2 this morning, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see and, and that the Israelites and us are not that different. We're going to see some parallels. And it's easy to look at the Israelites and go, oh, they should have followed God, what they didn't do, and what terrible people. But the fact is, this is a mirror for us to say, how are we like the Israelites? How can I not fall to the same thing as the Israelites did? And so here's the first parallel between Israel and us. We and they practice partial obedience. They practice this partial obedience. They were supposed to drive them all the way out of the land, but they're like, ah, let's stop. We don't really have to get them out because it's kind of nice to have some of them around because then they can be our slave labor, and we like that. They practice partial obedience. We do the same thing if we're honest with ourselves. We practice partial obedience. And part of the reason that we do that is because we play a comparison game. We don't fully obey God, but our neighbors aren't obeying God at all. And we go, well, you know, at least I go to church. I may not fully obey God, but at least I go to church. Or I may not fully obey God, but at least I give some money to the dollar club and to God's work. I may not fully obey God, but, but I do volunteer at church. And we have this mindset of a comparison thing where we don't fully obey God. You know, the other way that we don't fully obey God is in this, what I, what I kind of call a selective obedience, where we, we can look at the, the areas of our lives and we say, well, you know, I, I obey God when it comes to marriage and kids, but, but not when it comes to money and how I handle my money. Or, or I obey God when it comes to how I speak, but I don't, don't give him full control over the sexual areas of my life. Or I give him control over serving people and caring for people, but I don't give him full control over the excess alcohol that I drink frequently. You know, and we have this selective thing where we don't fully surrender our lives to God. And here's what happens with us. And here's what happens, and we'll see this over and over again in the book of Judges, is that when we don't fully surrender, it causes bigger problems down the road. That we just kind of kick our issues down the road, and we don't deal with it now and surrender now. And then down the road, we'll see the Israelites have these bigger problems because they didn't do what God asked them to do at the beginning. I'll give you an example of this. This is from Judges chapter 2, verse 11. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. When they, it says, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Asherah. And so because they didn't drive these people out, then they're like, well, let's kind of check out your God. Oh, let's, let's also worship Baal alongside of God. Well, let's worship this God alongside of our God. Well, let's just worship your God. And there was this progression that happened 
where they would fall into, as it says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtra. That's what happens when we don't fully address the sin in our lives. Here's the second parallel, and it comes from the same set of verses. Parallel between Israel and us is we and they worship other gods. We and they worship other gods. You know, they worship various gods of the Canaanites. Um, you know, our gods don't typically go by the names of Baal and Asherah and Molech and, and so forth. But they do go by names such as fame, success, popularity, wealth, pleasure, comfort. Those are the gods that we worship. And sometimes the gods that we worship are even kind of good things, but they take the place of God being first. We can worship family. We can worship marriage. We can worship career building or championships or children. And those things, anytime something that takes the place of what should be first in our lives and puts something else there, that becomes a God in our lives. I want to read you a quote um, from a guy named Tim Keller. And uh, Tim, I think we have this book up here. So if you want to take a picture of that or remember the name of it, it's Tim Keller, Judges for You. Um, This is a fantastic book. And so I've been reading the book of Judges a little bit ahead of y'all, just kind of getting a preview. And this week I was reading something and I was, and it was like, I was reading this passage and it was like, and they tied the foxes together by their tails and lit them on a fire and they ran through the crops. And I'm like, what in the world is that about, right? And so then I open up this book, this companion book, go to the right chapter. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And so as you read the book of Judges on your own, you'll get to these places where like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. This is a fantastic kind of companion uh, commentary that will help you, written by Tim Keller. But as I was reading his section on this part, he said this about gods and kind of the counterfeit gods. He says this, says, Jesus is the only God who, if you find him, will satisfy you, and if you fail him, will forgive you. Run from him, and he will still pursue you. That all of the other gods that we're tempted to pursue, money, fame, wealth, marriage, family, all of those things, success, notoriety, all of those things will eventually fail us. But Jesus never will. And on top of that, when we are unfaithful, that he still pursues us. And I love that about Jesus. So here's what comes in the next verse after verse 13, which we read a moment ago. It says this. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because they were worshiping other gods. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And so as I said earlier about the Israelites pushing out the Canaanites, now it's reversed. They're worshiping the wrong gods, and so God uses other nations to essentially punish Israel. And so what we see here 
is there's a cycle that happens throughout the book of Judges. And again, as you read the book of Judges on your own, you'll be able to see this cycle. And sometimes you'll see all the parts of it, and sometimes just a part of it, and sometimes lots will be commentaried on, and sometimes just one. But let me show you this cycle, um, and we have a graphic for it. And again, you can, uh, if you want, you can take a picture of that. Uh, You can also Google this and find it online. Um, There's kind of two versions of this that you'll see. So the first uh, part of the cycle is the people fall into sin and idolatry. They fall into sin and idolatry. They worship other gods. Um, And as they worship other gods, um, it's this idea of worshiping other gods, but it's also part of it is just worshiping themselves. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, and this comes in different forms, but it's kind of summarized in the last verse, the very last um, chapter of Judges. It says this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. Doesn't that describe our culture? In those days, in 2022, they didn't follow God. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. And, and we see this in our culture. If it feels good, do it. You're your own boss. As long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, then go ahead and do it. And everybody does what is right in his own sight. And, and we see that in the culture, but I also think that we see this, if we're honest, we see this in the church as well, where we kind of adjust what we, you know, God says is, but we don't really like it, so we kind of adjust to say, well, no, really, it means this. And we kind of recycle, or not recycle, but we kind of readjust what God says so that we like it, so it's more palatable to us. And that's the same version of everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think we're guilty of that. So then the cycle continues. Um, The next is that God is angry. And that's, to us, it's like, no, God is love. God is not angry. And, And sometimes that, again, there's some tough concepts in this. But when we talk about this, God is angry with the Israelites, and God is angry with us when we sin. But here's the thing, is God is angry. It's not in the sense he's mad at you or he doesn't like you, but he's angry when we sin because it breaks our relationship with him. It takes us away from what is best for us in being in relationship with him. I was reminded of a great truth um, this week, and I'd read it before, but I reread it um, this week, and it's this is anger is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. And and think about that if you have a child of your own, right? If your child does, you know, just say wanders off and says, you know, an older child, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, 16, whatever it is, wanders off, right? And you get angry because that child's making bad decisions. That's love, right? Because you want that child to live the way that that child needs to live. But if that same child, or a different situation, but the child wanders off, just kind of living crazy life, and you're like, I don't really care. His fault, his issue, whatever. That's apathy. I don't care. But we look at this, and God becomes angry over our sin because he cares for us. And the next section, the next part of the cycle is oppression by enemies. Um, and this is God's way of getting the Israelites attention. And then it says they cry out, the people cry out, um, and they cry out in repentance, essentially. Um, and, and part of it is because of the pain they're experiencing of the oppression, and part of it is grieving over their sin. 
So they cry out, and then God answers, and he raises up a judge. Again, not a judge like a Supreme Court justice with a robe, but a military leader who will uh, free them from the oppression that they're experiencing. Uh, And then there would be a time of peace. And that would last a few years or a couple of decades. There would be a time of peace. Then that judge would die, and then the cycle starts over again, and the people fall into sin and idolatry. And as you read this, you'll see this over and over in the book of Judges, if you look for every time there's a judge raised up. So that takes us to the third parallel, is we and they have a pattern and cycle of sin. We and they have a pattern and cycle of sin. And here's the question that I have for us, is what would it look like to shorten the cycle of sin? In other words, the, the, the part of peace, number six on there, lasts a longer time, and then we're going to sin. And the fact is, we are going to sin. We can't go, oh, one sermon, read the book of Judges, not going to sin anymore. It's just not realistic, right? But what can we do to shorten this kind of repentance cycle? Uh, an analogy that I heard years ago that I love is if you have cereal, right, and you eat a bowl of cereal, and then you leave it in the sink, and you've got your Rice Krispies kind of around the side of your Fruit Loops or whatever it is, uh, and they're stuck to the side of the bowl, you know, there's kind of two options. You can leave that till the next night or the next morning, and the longer you leave it, the harder it is to scrape those now dried, hardened Cheerios or Rice Krispies off your bowl. But right after you eat the bowl of cereal, if you wash it, rinse it, put in the dishwasher, have you do that, it comes off easily. And the same is true when it comes to sin. How quickly can we repent? How quick can we get to repentance to restore the peace between us and God as we live this cycle as well? I want to draw one last parallel. Um, God in here, and you're gonna, you've, maybe you've seen this, um, but I'll kind of draw it out for you. But, but God says, or gives sort of two contradictory statements or promises. I'll say seemingly contradictory. Give you one uh, in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. It says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Right? So this is God saying, I will love you, and I will bless you always. I will never break my covenant to protect you, to watch over you. But then, a couple of verses later, it says, Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Saying, I'm not going to drive them out. These people in the land that you didn't drive out, they're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a problem to you. And so you have this sort of two kind of statements from God. One is, I will always love you, and I will bless you. And the other is, I will punish you, and I will exact my justice upon you. And those two things, as you read the book of Judges, are kind of held in tension. And both of those sentiments from God of, I will bless you, and I will exact justice upon you, both of those exist. And that tension exists for 1,500 years. And that tension is not fully resolved until we read this by John the Baptist. It says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The tension of God's love and God's justice is not fully resolved until the cross of Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was God's full love of us 
And it was also God's full presentation of justice upon his son who died in our place on the cross. And that takes us to the final parallel. Is we and they need a savior. That we and they need a savior. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. And if I could just ask you to bow your heads. And I just want to lead your thoughts to a couple of different places. The first is this. If, if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that now. To place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, knowing that we can never break the cycle of sin, and so therefore we need a Savior. For some of you this morning, you have been practicing partial obedience. And I invite you this morning to fully surrender every area of your life to God. To confess those areas that you've been holding back where you know that you have been just partially obedient, not fully obeying what God would have you do. And this morning, if you realize that you've been worshiping other gods, money, fame, success, family, sex, whatever it might be, I invite you to repent of that and to worship the Lord only. And this morning, if you find that you are caught in the cycle of sin, I invite you to repent of your sin and return to peace with God. Father, we thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for speaking to us. And God, allow us to know and to live and to rest in your forgiveness. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And then, Lord, let us move forward out of this building with the courage to fully surrender to you, to fully live how you want us to live. Give us the courage to do that, and equally, or maybe even more importantly, give us the strength to do that, the empowerment to do that, as your Holy Spirit enables us to live that way. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.